0: Section 25 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jennifer Painter Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers by Elbert Hubbard Lord Nelson and Lady Hamilton, Part 2 From 1793 to 1798, Nelson made history and made it rapidly. For three years of this time, he was in constant pursuit of the enemy, with no respite from danger, night or day. When a ship mutinied, Nelson was placed in charge of it if he was within call, and the result was that he always won the absolute love and devotion of his men. He had a dignity which forbade him making himself cheap, "'but yet he got close to living hearts. "'The enemy are there,' he once said to a sullen crew, "'and I depend upon you to follow me over the side "'when we annihilate the distance that separates our ships. "'You shall accept no danger that I do not accept. "'No hardship shall be yours that shall not be mine. "'I need no promises from you that you will do your duty. "'I know you will. "'You believe in me and I in you.' "'We are Englishmen, fighting our country's battles. "'And so to your work, my men, to your work.' "'The mutinous spirit melted away, "'for the men knew that if Nelson fought with them, "'it would be for the privilege of getting at the enemy first. "'No officer ever carried out sterner discipline, "'and none was more implicitly obeyed. "'But the obedience came more through love than fear.' Nelson lost an eye in battle in 1795. A few months after, in a fierce engagement, the Admiral signalled, Stop firing! Nelson's attention was called to the signal, and his reply was, I am short one eye, and the other isn't much good, and I accept no signals I cannot see. Lay alongside of that ship and sink her. Nelson was advanced, step by step, and became admiral of the fleet. At the Battle of Santa Cruz, Nelson led a night attack on the town in small boats. The night was dark and stormy, and the force expected to get in under the forts without being discovered. The alarm was given, however, and the forts opened up a terrific fire. Nelson was standing in the prow of a small boat and fell, his arm shattered at the elbow. He insisted on going forward and taking command, even though his sword arm was useless. Loss of blood, however, soon made him desist, and he was transferred to another boat, which was sent back loaded with wounded. The sailors rowed to the nearest anchored ship, her lights out and four miles from shore. On pulling up under the lee of the ship, Nelson saw that it was the Corvette Seahorse, and he ordered the men to row to the Agamemnon a mile away, saying, Captain Fremantle's wife is aboard of that ship, and we are in no condition to call on ladies. Arriving at the Agamemnon, the surgeons were already busy caring for the wounded. Seeing their commander, the surgeons rushed to his assistance. He ordered them back, declaring he would take his place and await his turn in line, and this he did. When it came his turn, the surgeon saw that it was a comminuted fracture of the elbow with the whole right hand reduced to a pulp, and that amputation was the only thing. There were no anaesthetics, and at daylight, on the deck where there was air and light, Nelson watched the surgeons sever the worthless arm. As they bandaged the stump, he dictated a report of the battle to his secretary, but after writing for ten minutes, the poor secretary fell limp in a faint, and Nelson ordered one of the surgeons to complete taking the dictation. This official report contained no mention of the calamity that had befallen the commander, he regarding the loss of an arm as merely an incident. In six months' time, he had met and defeated all the ships of Napoleon that could be located. When he returned to England, an ovation met him such as never before had been given to a sailorman. He was Sir Horatio, although he complained that They began to call me Lord Nelson even before I had gotten used to having my ears tickled by the sound of Sir. He was made knight of the bath, given a pension of a thousand pounds a year, and so many medals pinned upon his breast that he walked with a limp, a local writer said. The limp, however, was from undiscovered lead, and this, with one eye, one arm, and a naturally slender and gaunt figure, "'gave him a peculiarly pathetic appearance. "'The actions of his wife at this time "'in pressing herself on society "'and in her endeavours to make of him a public show "'were the unhappy ending of a series "'of marital misunderstandings "'which led him to part with her, "'placing his entire pension at her disposal. "'Trouble in the East,' soon demanded a firm hand, "'and Nelson sailed away to meet the emergency.' This time he was in pursuit of a concentrated fleet, with Napoleon on board. It was Nelson's hope and expectation to capture Napoleon. If he had, none would have been so fortunate as the little corporal himself. It would have saved him the disgrace of failure, a soldier of fortune seized by accident after a series of successes that dazzled the world, and then captured by a sea-fighter on the water as great as he himself was on land. But alas, Napoleon was to escape, which he did by a flight where wind and tide seemed to answer his prayer. But Nelson crushed his navy. The story of the battle has been told in chapters that form a book, so no attempt to repeat the account need here be made. Let it suffice that 16 English ships grappled to the death for three days with 21 French ships, with the result that the French fleet, save four ships, were sunk, burned, or captured. It was not a victory, said Nelson, it was a conquest. The French Commodore, Casabianca, was killed on board of his ship, Orient, and his son, a lad of ten, stood on the burning deck till all but him had fled, and supplied the subject for a poem that thrilled our boyish hearts and causes us to sigh even yet. The four ships that escaped would probably never have gotten away had Nelson not been wounded by flying splinters which tore open his scalp. The torn skin hung down over his one good eye, blinding him absolutely, and the blood flowed over his face in jets, making him unrecognisable. He was carried to the surgeon's table. There was a hurried, anxious moment, and a shout of joy went up that could have been heard a mile when it was found that he had suffered only a flesh wound. The flap was sewed back in place, his head bandaged, and in half an hour he was on deck looking anxiously for fleeing Frenchmen. When the news of the victory reached England, Nelson was made a baron and his pension increased to £2,000 a year for life. England loved him, France feared him, and Italy, Egypt and Turkey celebrated him as their saviour. The elder Pitt said in the House of Commons, the name of Nelson will be known as long as government exists and history is read. And Nelson, the battle won, himself wounded, exhausted through months of intense nervous strain, his frail body maimed and covered with scars, again sailed into the Bay of Naples. Nelson had saved Naples from falling a prey to the French and the city now rang with the shouts of welcome and gratitude. The Hamiltons went out in a small boat and boarded the vanguard. Nelson came forward to greet them as they climbed over the side. The great fighter was leaning heavily upon a sailor who half supported him. It is probably true, as stated by her enemies, that at sight of the Admiral, Lady Hamilton burst into tears and taking him in her arms, kissed him tenderly. Nelson was taken to the home of the embassy. The battle won. The strain upon his frail physique had its way. His brain reeled with fever. The echoes of the guns still thundered in his ears. And in his half delirium, his tongue gave orders and anxiously asked after the welfare of the fleet. He was put to bed and Lady Hamilton cared for him as she might have cared for a sick child. She allowed no hired servant to enter his room, and for several weeks she and Sir William were his only attendants. Gradually health returned, and Nelson had an opportunity to repay in part his friends by helping them quell a riot that threatened the safety of the city. The months passed, and the only peace and calm that had been Nelson's in his entire life, was now his. Nelson was forty years of age. Lady Hamilton was thirty-seven. Sir William was seventy-one. The inevitable happened, the most natural and the most beautiful thing in the world. Love came into the life of Nelson, the first, last, and only love of his life, and he loved with all the abandon and oneness of his nature. Sir William was aware of the bond that had grown up between his beautiful wife and Lord Nelson, and he respected it and gave it his blessing, realising that he himself belonged to another generation and had but a few years to live at best, and in this he fastened to himself with hoops of a steel their affection for him. In the year 1800, when the Hamiltons started for England, Nelson accompanied them in their tour across the continent, and great honours were everywhere paid him. Arriving in London, he made his home with them. There was no time for idleness, for the Home Office demanded his services daily for consultation and advice, for the Corsican was still at large, very much at large. In two years Sir William died, passed peacefully away, attended and ministered to by Lord Nelson and Lady Hamilton. Two years more were to pass, and the services of a sea fighter of the Nelson caliber were acquired. Napoleon had gotten together another navy, and having combined with Spain, they had a fleet that outclassed that of England. Only one man in England could, with any assurance of success, fight this superior foe on the water. Nelson fought ships as an expert plays chess. He had reduced the game to a science. If the enemy made this move, he made that. He knew how to lure a hostile fleet and have it pursue him to the ground he had selected, and then he knew how to cut it in half and whip it piecemeal. His fighting was consummate strategy, combined with a seeming recklessness that gave a courage to the troops which made them invincible. English society forgives anything but honesty and truth and the name of Nelson had been spit upon because of his love for Lady Hamilton. But now danger was at the door, and England wanted a man. Nelson hesitated, but Lady Hamilton said, Go, yes, go this once. Your country calls, and only you can do this task. The work done, come home to me, and the rest shall be yours that you so richly deserve. Go, and my love shall follow you. That night, Nelson started for Portsmouth, and in four days was on the coast of Spain. For the next two years and a half, he was in the centre and was one of the controlling spirits of the vast military and naval drama which found its closing scene in Trafalgar Bay, years which, to Nelson, in spite of the arduous duties of his command, constituted the most severe and peaceful period of his troubled career. The Battle of Trafalgar was fought October 21st, 1805. At daylight, Nelson hoisted the signal. England expects every man to do his duty. Gave the order to close in, and the game of death began. Each side had made a move. Nelson retired to his cabin and wrote this codicil to his will. October 21st, 1805 in sight of the combined fleets of France and Spain, distance about ten miles. Whereas the eminent services of Emma Hamilton, widow of the Right Honourable Sir William Hamilton, having been of the very greatest service to my king and country, to my knowledge, without ever receiving any reward from either our king or country. First, that she obtained the King of Spain's letter in 1796 to his brother, the King of Naples, acquainting him of his intention to declare war against England, from which letter the Ministry sent out orders to the then Sir John Jarvis to strike a stroke, if the opportunity offered, against either the arsenals of Spain or her fleets. That these were not done is not the fault of Lady Hamilton. The opportunity might have been offered. Secondly, the British fleet under my command... "'could never have returned the second time to Egypt "'had not Lady Hamilton's influence with the Queen of Naples "'caused a letter to be written to the governor of Syracuse "'that he was to encourage the fleet being supplied with everything "'should they put into any port in Sicily. "'We put into Syracuse and received every supply, "'went to Egypt and destroyed the French fleet. "'Could I have rewarded these services?' I would not now call upon my country, but as that has not been in my power, I leave Emma, Lady Hamilton therefore, a legacy to my king and country, that they will give her an ample provision to maintain her rank in life. I also leave to the beneficence of my country my daughter Horatia Nelson Thompson, and I desire she will use in future the name of Nelson only. These are the only favours I ask of my king and country at this moment when I am going to fight their battle. May God bless my king and country and all those I hold dear. Nelson Witness, Henry Blackwood, T.M. Hardy Nelson ordered the Temeraire, the fighting Temeraire, the ship of which Ruskin was to write the finest piece of prose poetry ever penned, to lead the charge then saw to it that the order could not be carried out, for the victory led. By noon, Nelson had gotten several men into the king row. Three of the enemy's ships had struck, two were on fire, and four were making a desperate endeavour to escape the fate that Nelson had prepared for them. At one o'clock, Nelson's own ship, the Victory, had grappled with the redoubtable and was chained fast to her. Nelson's men had shot the hull of the redoubtable full of holes and once set fire to her. Then, thinking the vessel had struck, since her gunners had ceased their work, Nelson ordered his own men to cease firing and extinguish the flames on the craft of the enemy. Just at this time, a musket ball, fired from the yards of the redoubtable, struck Nelson on the shoulder and passed down through the vertebrae. He fell upon the deck, exclaiming to Captain Hardy, who was near, They have done for me now, Hardy. My back is broken. He was carried below, but the gush of blood into the lungs told the tale. Nelson was dying. He sent for Hardy, but before the captain could be found, the hurrahing on the deck told that the redoubtable had surrendered. A gleam of joy came into the one blue eye of the dying man, and he said, I would like to live one hour just to know that my plans were right. We must capture or destroy twenty of them. Hardy came and held the hand of his friend. Kiss me, Hardy. I am dying. Tell Lady Hamilton that my last words were of her. Goodbye. And he covered his face and the stars on his breast with a handkerchief, so that his men might not recognise the dead form of their chief as they hurried by at their work. Nelson was dead, but Trafalgar was one. Lady Hamilton was unfortunate in having her history written only by her enemies, written with goose quills. Taine says, the so-called best society in England is notoriously corrupt and frigidly pious. It places a premium on hypocrisy, a penalty on honesty, and having no virtues of its own, it cries shrilly about virtue, as if there were but one, and that negative. Nelson, in his innocence, did not know English society, otherwise he would not have commended Lady Hamilton to the gratitude of the English. It was a little like commending her to a pack of wolves. The sum of £10,000 was voted to each of Nelson's sisters, but not a penny to Lady Hamilton, my wife before the eyes of God, as he himself expressed it. Fortunately, an annuity of £400 had been arranged for Horatia, the daughter of Lord Nelson and Lady Hamilton, and this saved Lady Hamilton and her child from absolute want. As it was, Lady Hamilton was arrested on a charge of debt, imprisoned, and practically driven out of England, although the sisters of Lord Nelson believed in her and respected her to the last. Lady Hamilton died in France in 1813. Her daughter, Horatia Nelson, became a strong, excellent and beautiful woman, passing away in 1881. She married the Reverend Philip Ward of Teventer, Kent, and raised a family of nine children. One of her sons moved to America and made his mark upon the stage, and also in letters. The American branch spell the name Ward, W-A-R-D-E. In England, several of the grandchildren of Lord Nelson have made the name of Ward illustrious in art and literature. Mrs Ward wrote a life of her mother, but a publisher was never found for the book, and the manuscript was lost or destroyed. Some extracts from it, however, were published in the London Athenaeum in 1877, and the picture of Lady Hamilton there presented was that of a woman of great natural endowments, a welling heart of love, great motherly qualities, high intellect and aspiration, caught in the web of unkind condition in her youth, but growing out of this and developing a character which made her the rightful mate of Nelson, the Invincible. Nelson the incorruptible, against whose loyalty and honesty not even his enemies ever said a word, save that he fell a victim to his love, his love for one woman. Loveless, unloved, and unlovable, tamas the Titan, from Echelfechen, writing in Spleen, says, Nelson's unhappy affair with a saucy jade of a wench has supplied the world more gabble than all his victories and possibly the affair in question was quite as important for good as the battles won. The world might do without war, but I make the hazard it could not long survive if men and women ceased to love and mate. However, I may be wrong. People whose souls are made of dawn stuff and starshine may make mistakes, but God will not judge them by these alone. But for the love of Lady Hamilton, Nelson would probably never have lived to fight Trafalgar, one of the pivotal battles of the world. Nelson saved England from the fell clutch of the Corsican, and Lady Hamilton saved Nelson from insanity and death. Nelson knew how to do three great things, how to fight, how to love, how to die. End of section 25 End of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers by Albert Hubbard